Well, good morning. Some of you probably feel like you need to adjust your dial as you're seeing this Hawkeye wear uh, Illini stuff, but sometimes you got to give the people what they want. Can I get an amen? amen? All right. All right. Well, I am glad that you're here and it is March Madness. And so I want to talk a little bit about rivalries. I want to talk about how people get so excited for their sports team and who they get to cheer against. This is the season that many of us begin to rally around the Illini. And matter of fact, it's an infectious time to live in the Champaign-Urbana area. People are excited, they're hopeful, and the quest for a national title almost seems within our reach. But there are two kinds of people in this world. They're the kind of people who only cheer for their team, and they're the kind of people who cheer for their team and anybody that's in their conference during tournament season. Now... I have a friend who literally chastises anyone who cheers for a team that they normally cheer against during the season. He gets frustrated because he believes a rivalry in the season is still a rivalry in the postseason. So he enjoys the fact that Ohio State and Michigan State are out. And he anticipates the days when everybody else in the Big Ten is out and only... Only the Illini still stand. And I'm just going to tell you, this mean, spiteful person is an elder of ours. <laughs> but he loves the orange and blue. And if there's one phrase that kind of uh, humorously captures the story of Jonah, it is rivalry. It is a rivalry story. How Jonah is rivaling God, how Jonah is rivaling the Ninevites, and how Jonah doesn't realize he's even rivaling himself. He's at war, and he's so upset with what God might do for others that it is now consuming his very life. Rivalries destroy us if we're not careful, and we can let those things begin to consume us, or they can begin to propel us with a greater vision for what God wants from us. We've unpacked this one thought, I want you to see it on the screen here, uh, about God's will being done. We've said it this way, that God's will will be done whether with us or in spite of us. And this book has caused us to look at our lives and just pause for a little bit and say, is God truly using us or is God having to work around us for his will, for his glory, and his honor. We hear the story of Jonah, uh, his running away from God, and we recognize and even understand that a bit. Uh, we hear his moments in the deep, and we recognize even our own struggle of times where we have fought God and had to wrestle with who God is calling us to be. And we see this cycle that plays out in Jonah's life. And we recognize it maybe in our own life. That first and foremost, God begins to speak to Jonah. God begins to speak to Jonah, and we see that in this cycle. That as soon as God begins to speak into Jonah's life, he is given a choice. And he's given the opportunity to encounter pagans or people who are far from God, people who do not understand the one true God. And what's interesting is we begin to unpack this story. We recognize that oftentimes those far from God have a more appropriate response and obedience to God than what Jonah would have. And then the cycle completes as Jonah begins to then talk to God and realign, reevaluate himself. 
rediscover what God has asked of him and who he should be. And so here we are in chapter three. This cycle is playing out. And we are now coming through the second time of this cycle. And I think for many of us, when we see this rebellion and running from God, the recognizing of God working in the people around us, and then coming back to a heart of repentance, we have a chance to either fully surrender our lives back to God or reluctantly step forward. And Jonah does the latter. Here's what it says in Jonah chapter 3. I want to look at the first four verses and start to unpack the 10 verses out of Jonah chapter 3 and really look at what happens once Jonah gets out of the deep and heads towards the city of Nineveh. Here's what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We're starting this a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Proclaim to it the message I've given you. And Jonah obeyed. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming this, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Not exactly the most encouraging message, right? Not going to slap that in a hallmark and hand that out to your friends. 40 more days, and the city will be overthrown. Uh, the message of the book of Jonah has this overarching discussion about the sovereignty of God. And while we attribute this book being about the story of Jonah, it's really about the will and the direction of God through Jonah's life. And there are amazing pictures that we see when we look at God and what he is doing, even in the midst of a reluctant prophet, even in the midst of a rebellious prophet, even in the midst of a people that are far from him. And God has this will and this working of his mission to the world and our mission for God. So it should not surprise us that a compassionate and gracious God would still desire to use Jonah. We're surprised because when we look at Jonah, we see his failure. We see our failure. We, we wonder our own value and why would God choose to use us? It's interesting in chapter one, the word of the Lord goes to Jonah to send him to Nineveh. And Jonah says, no, he's reluctant to bring this message to a people. It's a, it's a hardened prophet with a very hard message to share in front of a group of people that he doesn't want to see one to God. The second time the word of the Lord goes to, to Jonah, Jonah says, okay. And he goes to Nineveh. It's still a difficult message for a difficult people. But this time, the prophet is at least willing to do what God asks. And so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. What I love about this and about God is that God gives second chances through his grace. If chapter 3 is trying to point to anything for us, is that God is a God of second chances. Now, I don't know Jonah personally, but I can almost promise you this wasn't the first time Jonah needed a second chance. 
I can probably tell you that this isn't the only time that Jonah is ever going to need a second chance. But in this moment, a second chance is given for Jonah in his faithfulness to follow after God. It's not a great, it's not a great example of obedience. It's kind of like the reluctant child who's asked to clean their room and doesn't want to. Right? As parents, what we want is for our children to say, sure, I'd be glad to do that. And as they clean their room, they sing, they whistle, you can smell the pledge and all the cleaning utensils making its way through the room. And there's a fragrance, not only of cleanliness, but of happiness. But like most children, when we clean our room, there's noise, there's grunts, there's frustration. But as long as the room gets cleaned, we don't argue, right? Can I get a parent that agrees with that? Yeah. And God sees Jonah in this moment. And let's not kid ourselves. Jonah is not thrilled about this message, but he is obedient. Now we go to Nineveh. And what it says about Nineveh is it's a great city. It's a large city. It's, it's interesting that it's described as a great city, but it's reminded in its culture and of its day, it is a trade route. It is high traffic area. It is a place of influence. And so you begin to capture the heart of God and realize that this second chance with Jonah may allow a place of influence, a people of influence to begin to transform the world that they're a part of. They say it takes three days to walk the city. Some would say, well, maybe it's because the city is just so large. Well, I think what most commentators say is true, that it's not so much that it's so massive to take three days to walk across, but to go to share the message and for it to infiltrate the relationships and the neighborhoods, it would take three days of sharing and sharing and sharing so the message could get out. And this is the message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Did you know in the original Hebrew, it's just five simple words. Five words. Stark in nature, harsh in tone, but direct in the desire for God's heart to see their hearts changed. In some ways, I almost see Jonah getting excited about sharing this kind of a message. We know he doesn't like them. Matter of fact, we would say he hates them. And his desire to go to them and to see their changed heart is not something that he's cheering for. And so in the midst of this moment, you can almost see that maybe there's a, maybe there's a small gleam in his eye, a twinkle in a moment, to stand and say something so harsh and so strong. But even in this in the harshness of Jonah, there's a picture of God that we need to see. I love how Eric talks about this when he describes it in our teaching team. He says the gospel, meaning the good news of Jesus, is both the hammer of God's wrath and the nails of God's grace. And the gospel reminds us that we are all sinners. And there's a payment a payment that had to be made through the person of Jesus. But in that payment, there's also the grace and restoration for all of humanity. God cared deeply enough for the Ninevites 
to warn them of the trajectory of their lives, the rebellion of their hearts, the misguided nature of pursuing everything else but their relationship with the one true God. And it's interesting. Where Jonah's effort begins to fall short, God's grace fills the gaps. Let's see how the Ninevites respond, though, to this, to this statement. Here's what it says, starting in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. Forty more days, and you'll be overturned. The Ninevites believe God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth and he sat down in his dust. This is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Everything, uh, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we would not perish. Chapter 3 starts with a second chance for Jonah, but it's a call to repentance for the Ninevites. The people believe. Their response reflects one of outward repentance, meaning while they may know they need to change, while they may feel they need to change, that literally in their custom of their day to truly repent to lament, to, to take on a posture of grief, you would outwardly change your posture and appearance. You would take off all your better clothing, all your, your finer clothing, and you would put on this sackcloth like burlap. You would dress yourself in such a way that it would show the ruin of your life. And so when a king gets off of his high horse or throne, and takes off everything that would distinguish him as great in power and clothe himself in a sense of humility and sit in the very dirt and the dust of his day would be to shake the very foundations of power in their culture that there is one true God and he's worthy to be worshiped. It's a stark picture. It's what God desires from all of us, that we would give up our lives in surrender back to him. I mean, we think about this for a moment. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that to be true for ourselves. And there was probably a moment in your life when you had an awakening before God of your decisions and your desires and you recognized that in the core of your being you were rebelling against the very heart and nature of God. 
And in that moment, there was a prompting of God's spirit, a conviction to our core that our lives must change. Sure, we didn't change our clothing. We didn't sit in the dirt of the room. But we came to a point where we recognized either God will be in control of our lives or we will stay in control of our lives. And in that surrender back to God, God began to give us a second chance. What I love about the harsh nature of this message, and and I don't really enjoy it, but in the warning and the stark nature of God's heart to tell them, to tell them of the wrath that is coming, there's a heart of correction And we all know that there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. But we know that because of our relationship with God. We recognize who we used to be. So for the first time, this stark message of God hits the Ninevites, and they have a choice to either respond or continue to rebel. It reminds us of God's nature, that God's judgment is ultimately for correction not revenge. When we look at this passage and we see what God is doing, when we look up, we realize that God is trying to lead all people to an act of correction before him, not revenge. God's not trying to retaliate, take a a hunk of flesh or wound us in this moment, but to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And so they repent. From the king of the community to the average of servants, all of the livestock and everything of that community flips its posture so that as they fast, their dependency is on one person, God. And they repent. But what are they repenting from? The passage describes violence. Violence. And not just a physical attack, but all forms of oppression and injustice as a society. When you begin to see this, you you recognize that this is coming out of a worldview of their society. They were known as a, a pagan society that they either believed in no God or tons of God, but not the true God. And so their value system was not rooted in that everyone is created in the image of God. And so power and class and, 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 and influence began to be shaped in ways that would oppress people. The survival of the fittest, only the strong survive. And much of that began to oppress and push people out of the way to the point that others literally hated the Assyrians, the way they treated people of the world. Nineveh is not just evil in their actions, but in the silence and the allowance of the oppression of people. It was a violent society that was known for oppressing, taking captive, and treating others as property or lesser than. But even though Jonah's sermon isn't the best, we see God's word get to their hearts. Recently, I had a chance to go to to Vegas 
And I think of this message of Jonah, you know, basically stop, turn to God. And it's kind of this huge, stark statement. We are standing uh, uh, in front of the Bellagio with my grandkids watching the fountains and I can hear this voice. He's got a megaphone and he's shouting this message to the masses in Vegas. And as I turn to the side, I see this sign and it says, turn or burn. And my heart just breaks. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of people are passing in front of this message. No context, no understanding, no, no real reason why anyone would want to stop and meet a God who starts there. And that's kind of what I feel like is happening with Jonah. And I hear that some people come to faith that way today. But it's the transformed lives of his people that when we relent, when we give up our ways and surrender in a posture of grace, those are the moments that people see the goodness of God, not in these harsh statements. And yet, God uses Jonah's obedience. Look what it says as it finishes up the chapter. It says this. When God saw what they did, meaning their repentance, and how they turned from their evil ways of violence and oppression, God relented. He relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now this would seem to be grounds for celebration, but look at verse 1 of chapter 4. But Jonah... But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Now we're going to unpack chapter 4 next week. And there's a whole discussion that we need to have about our heart being like God's heart for the people around us. But it's important that we stay into this portrait of chapter 3 about God's sovereignty and God's will to work through Jonah, even in his reluctance. There's a perspective that we need to see when we look out. When we see God's desire to reach all people, to work through us in the world around us, we need to recognize that our hearts can get in the way of God's grace. What makes a difference for Jonah when Jonah does reconcile before God in chapter 2, he comes to a point of obedience, a willingness to at least do what God is asking of him. I wish I could say that Jonah's heart towards others was changed too, but it does not appear to be that way in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He is a reluctant prophet, but even as a reluctant prophet, people are brought to repentance. And it's our hope that our reconciliation with God and others will lead others to God, even if we're reluctant. It's a mark of God's supernatural ability, God's supernatural grace to be able to work through us, even in spite of Jonah's attitude, the action of obedience to go is used by God. 
Isn't it interesting here? Jonah seems to be doing the right thing the wrong way or with the wrong attitude, and God still uses this moment for his glory. Like a kid who's asked to clean their room, as long as they get it done, that's what we want. Here's the tension for us, though. Here's the tension for us. What will we do when God's will goes against what we think or what we want? How will we be the kind of people that when God puts something on our heart like he's put on Jonah's heart, and we naturally say, no, 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 God, I'm not, I'm not for that. No, 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 God, I, I don't want to do that. No, no, God, that, that, that's not who I want to be. How will we respond? The Ninevites hear a harsh truth and respond in repentance. And I think if we were to pause for a moment, we would have to confess that oftentimes we are like Jonah. We can sometimes be the people who don't want to see others transformed. Maybe they've hurt us, injured us, oppressed us, wronged us. Maybe we have people that we don't want to forgive. And while we don't want to admit it, we don't want to publicly say it, if we were to assess our hearts, we too can be very much like Jonah. But look what happens in even the slight movement and obedience of Jonah before a broken people like the Ninevites. In the end, God relents when people repent. God relents when people repent. God's wrath and God's threatening stops as their hearts turn in compassion and repentance back to God. And he too has compassion for them. God's will and God's mission continues to seek people that are far from him through the people of God. A people who are completely undeserving of God's love. People who rebel and run away from God. People who even in spite of them will be able to be used by even the smallest act of obedience. It causes us to look into our own hearts. Are we at least willing to be obedient to God? You know, God turns the smallest steps of obedience into big moments of grace. Jonah is not a shining example of how to win others to Christ. He is an example of obedience to go to those who God's call us to move towards. And if we're honest, we would have to admit that Jonah's prejudice before God shows up significantly. Not just in his hatred towards a specific people, but his hatred towards those far from God. And if there is a prejudice that we have to recognize that can be permeated in us, is a, pre is a prejudice against those who are far from God. And what I mean by far from God is anyone who doesn't know the grace of God through Jesus. 
Friends, I'll be transparent with you. I hear our own prejudice sometimes through Christian folk. When we talk about sharing our faith, living out in compassion, and I hear good Christian people say, but I don't know anybody who's not a Christian. How did we get so separate? How did we get so far away that we no longer live in the proximity of those who need to know God's grace the most? That's why I love this this bookmark. There's one in front of you. We've challenged every one of you to pray for your one. To pray for your one. That there's probably somebody in your reach who doesn't know God. And we've encouraged you, yeah, you can invite them to church, but what we want to do is encourage you to introduce them to Jesus through your life through your own personal story and conversation about how God has worked through you. This bookmark's very simple. And there's a name that you can put at the one. And we want you to pray every day that you would have an opportunity to share your faith. The bookmark is simply just asks us to pray for one to take the five weeks leading up to Easter to understand the values of our church and why the one is so important to us. And join us on Mondays as we share a video of either devotion or testimony about that value, but that it would be anchored in our simple response before the one. Why? Because God turns small steps of obedience into big moments of grace. Even in the reluctance of Jonah, His willingness to go and share opened a door for repentance on an entire community. It's been that way for us and our church. And 2021's already been pretty fun. We step into a year that we're unsure about how we're going to live out some of our outward compassion and how we're going to care for our community as a loving community. And early on, we decide, let's continue with night to shine. And we've got a different way to do it. And so we challenge our church. Let's buy some gift cards. Let's bless some families. And you inundate us with gifts to help us to bless families. This last month, we we pause for a moment and say, hey, we, we need to bless Wiley Elementary in Urbana. It's a school that we work with and we help support. Would you run to McDonald's just today and go buy a $5 gift card? And we cleaned out multiple McDonald's of gift cards and bless a school and their administration and their teachers. Rumor has it, it brought tears to their principal to see how the people of God would just respond in a simple act of obedience. We've seen it when people decide to give their life to Christ in baptism. And somebody who's within arm's reach as a friend or a family member begin to have the courage to follow in obedience as well. Friends, Jonah is not a wonderful example of obedience. But he is an example. He's an example of a second chance and being willing to just take your next step of faith. What about you? What small step of obedience is God asking from you? Let's move to our time of response. Each week we pause for just a moment and we challenge us as a church to take a next step. 
The reality is some of us come here, whether online or in person, and we kind of do this shtick. We do this routine. We show up and we go through the motions. But if we were transparent, sometimes we don't take a step. We just do what we normally do. And maybe today there's been a prayer request that you've been holding on, that you've been afraid to admit in front of maybe friends or your church. I wanna encourage you to take out the app today and I wanna encourage you to, to write down that prayer request. Allow us to come alongside with you. Maybe it's been a step of obedience with your own personal faith uh, of being baptized. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but you've been, you've been cautious, maybe even fearful of stepping out. Maybe it's because you're afraid of in that act of surrender, you're, you're not gonna get it all perfect. You're not gonna quite have your act together. We never quite have our act together towards God. But in that act of surrender, what we're admitting is that God, we, we need you. We want you to rule and reign in our lives. We want to be obedient in every area of our lives. You know, we pause each week to take communion. It's a time that we reflect on the night that Jesus sat down in front of his disciples. He was about ready to give his life on the cross. And he said, when he took the bread, he said, uh, this is my body being broken for you. This do in remembrance. And he took the bread and they ate it. They were reflecting on how God had delivered them in Egypt, had passed over their homes and delivered them. And they were seeing in this moment, Jesus saying, just like God delivered you there, I am going to deliver you. In the same way, he took the wine. He said, this is my blood poured out for you, take and drink, and they did. Jesus was pointing to his death on the cross they did not fully understand what was gonna come over the next few days. But one has to believe that that stark night of dinner, followed by that stark day of death, burial, and resurrection on that weekend, must have been significant because as you turn the pages into the book of Acts, you see the practice of the early church coming together for a meal and saying, this is Christ's body, this is Christ's blood shed for us. And in that remembrance, we're reminded that we too are called to surrender all of our life back to God. Maybe there's a next step of faith Maybe there's an act of obedience that God's calling you towards. But we also want to encourage you to give. That giving of our finances is one way that we respond in worship back to God, declaring our dependency on Him and the generosity of God in our lives for His mission and His purpose. You can use the app or the give and respond boxes as you I want to encourage you to go ahead and stand. We're going to continue to sing a song of declaration that through its words and through its lyrics, it's declaring God, I too will follow after you. So will I. So will I. 
And I want to encourage you, if that song is true for you, then sing it. And if it's something that you're wrestling with, would you just pause and pray in this moment that that would become your heart to follow after God in everything that he asks of you. Let's respond.